Welcome to the Say What You Mean podcast. We're here with Liberty Elman, an old friend of mine. I've known him for about 25 years. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> that, that's not that long. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> and Liberty's got a new record out, his first in a long time. And that's exciting to me because I think it's been too many years since he uh, released his own product. So we just heard one of the cuts off of that, and I thought that we could begin with Liberty telling us a little bit about how he approached that solo. He described it to me before we played that as rhythmically charged. So, Liberty, talk a little bit about how um, rhythm comes into your playing and, and how you constructed that super funky bass line. Because one of the characteristics of your compositions is this beautiful rhythmic counterpoint between the registers. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Talk to us about your process. Well, I think, you know, uh, <clears throat> as many musicians would tell you, obviously music is uh, constructed of rhythm, you know, it's, uh, between the notes, right? I mean, it's not just harmony. And uh, the, for me, the dialogue that you have with uh, the musicians that you're playing with is a conversation in rhythm, you know, and it's, it's something where you have... Uh, mutual trust and uh, you know you're having a common experience together mm -hmm. in the way that you approach the music and that and so you re you re achieve this kind of uh, group ecstasy you know for lack of a simpler thing um, but so for me what's what I really like to do with the music is try to create an environment where we can really uh, really have a lot of rhythmic vocabulary to play with you know and so that oftentimes comes from the composition sometimes it just comes from the way we react to each other but uh, especially the way for me the way I play with the drummer um, so sort of in the piece you know there'll be these devices that we use uh, that are based on different portions of the music um, depending on what bars we're playing you know this particular solo this song is called Supercell and the the, the, uh, the solo section is just a few bars repeated you know um, but it has this rhythm. It goes boom, 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 Right. So okay, basically like two bars of six or four bars of three. When I'm playing the guitar, I kind of think of playing rhythm almost like what drums would be doing. You know, it's like almost if you're gonna, especially if you're gonna play over one chord, you're not you're not really approaching it as a harmonic concept. It's more about this rhythm dialogue, as if you're a percussion ensemble. And how do we all, you know, how do we push and pull the time? to where it feels exciting and uh you know and it's not just about you know it's not really about chops as much as it is about groove you know yeah. e even if what we're playing even if the material has some dissonant uh you know uh qualities to it yeah 
if it's grooving, it's, it's going to be fun and it's going to feel good. And I think that also for the listener, it's exciting, you know? Yeah. Um, and for me, so that's why it's really important for me to have a great relationship with the drummer because if I don't have a lot of, uh, if they're not feeding things back to me and we're not having that real dialogue, then sometimes I can, I feel like I overplay or something because I'm trying to stimulate, stimulate this, this rhythmic explosion, you know, right. that, that right. I feel like I need to have, like, that's just something that really gives me pleasure, you know? some of the people that you would list as your rhythmic influences that that helped you develop this language that you currently have which um you know was really an evidence on your first cd mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i guess i probably heard you play early early 90s mm-hmm. and so i have some sense um if memory serves of of how your vocabulary grew and i'm curious if you could give us a few marker points along oh, the way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, back, certainly if you go back to the early 90s, um, I think that was when I started to really begin to develop my own voice uh, on the instrument. And probably that's because I, 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 I got so interested in some of the modern practitioners of, of jazz music, you know. So I was listening to Steve Coleman, so obviously Dave Gilmore the way he approached Steve's music and also just trying to learn about Steve and his music and how his compositions were put together. Um, that had a big influence on me and Dave Holland's quartet with Kevin Eubanks. Um, a lot of it had to do with the context of the music and not so much, not only with the player, you know, mm. it had more to do with like, what was the bed of activity? You know, what, what were all of the elements that were coming together? And so obviously those guys, uh, were dealing with, uh, injecting odd times and sort of groove elements of, of uh, even if you want to say R&B or funk, you know, but in a way that was sort of uh, academically advanced or something, you know, infusing that with jazz vocabulary. And I thought that was such a, you know, important moment for modern jazz because it, it gave uh, a way in for a lot of what, you know, 
what was to follow, you know. Yeah. Um, and certainly working, you know, I was in like seven bands with Vijay, and he had been listening to, to a lot of Steve's music. And, and you, wait a minute, you were in music. seven bands with Vijay Iyer? Oh, yeah. What, what were well, they? Well, <laughs> give okay. us a little history. I mean, it, it, it's I not stuff that you can one. find. Well, you can't find <laughs> necessarily find it, but, you know, he played in my band, which was like Liberty Elven Quartet. Right. I played in a group that he put together called The Poisonous Prophets, which was okay. mostly... Uh, Mostly his music, you know. Um, some of us contributed. The to Poisonous Prophets. Yeah, that was with Elliot Cavi and myself, uh-huh. and a bass player named Jeff Vilms and Vijay. Okay. But what was great about that was that you know Vijay had all all this uh, these neat little pieces that had you know this everything was based on a some sort of difficult and novel rhythm composition. Hmm. They weren't, and the, but they weren't necessarily long, you know. So, so, uh, but you had, but the melodies were sort of, uh, you know, a little bit elusive. And so, we would spend a lot of time just memorizing the music, and we would always play without charts. And so, uh, hmm. that was really fun because it, you know, you internalize all the music, even if it's complicated, and it always felt like it would take the performance to another level because you didn't, you know, there was one part of your your mind that didn't need to be engaged on paper, hmm. um, which I think everybody who plays music could agree that they, yeah. feel, they feel best not doing that. Anyway, so, but then we also played in a hip-hop group together called Midnight Voices. Right. God, I totally forgot about um, that. And then... Uh, this is just to remind people this is in the San Francisco Bay Area yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, but continue. Yeah. So a hip-hop group? Hip-hop group with, uh, with uh, this guy, Muhammad Bilal, and Will Power, who, who are both really talented guys. Um, Will is having a great career in uh you know theater uh, he's a great writer hilarious performer good actor he's a, he's a he's a really talented guy so we had that group then uh there was a guy named E.W. Wainwright who played drums on my first record on a couple of tracks who was sort of a elven disciple and he played with McCoy a bit in the 70s and hmm. he was a uh, he was an elder he was one of the elders in the Bay Area for who had an influence on me and, um, he had a band called the African Roots of Jazz I remember so, that. Yeah. yeah, so we played in that band together. Oh. So I think that's five now, right? Four or five. And then there were a few other things people would hire us. Dearmus Boone was a saxophone player who was very into Steve Coleman and the in-bass concept. And so uh, we played together in that band. Interesting. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the scene in the 90s in the Bay Area, which is where so much of both our development mm-hmm. transpired it was an interesting time to live in the Bay Area, right? It was a great time to live in the Bay Area. Because, yeah, well, tell well, us why. Well, in my opinion, uh, first of all, there were a lot of venues to play. Um, and, and and I think it coincides with the acid jazz movement, which conveniently uh, was sort of trendy um, in the clubs, at least in the Bay Area and probably mm. in England at that time. And I don't know if it was national or not because I didn't play much outside of the city at that time. But, but I can say that... Um, it meant that it was cool to play music that had groove, but instrumental music with solos, you know, so you could play in the clubs that were, that also had DJs and things like that. But as a, sort of what the jam band circuit sort of proved, especially people like Medeski, Martin, and Wood, was that if you had music that grooved and people wanted to listen to it, you could almost take it as out as you want, as long as they could sort of hang with it, you know. Right. Um, and... And that was true for the you know I was playing original music with odd times and trying to trying to do something 
approximate to what the NBA stuff was doing and playing in these clubs where people were drinking and hanging out and, and it seemed like it was acceptable. You know, yeah. people, were, people were open to it. You know, I played wow. the elbow room and it would be kind of crowded. What a nice you know? memory. Yeah, it was a wonderful time. And, yeah. and But like, you know, Charlie Hunter was there doing his thing. There was the up and down club and, and like a, a lot of hip hop, live hip hop bands like Alphabet Soup. Um, and there were musicians like Graham Connor who was doing probably the closest to Mingus kind of writing that anyone was doing around there. Ben Goldberg was on the scene and Dred Scott, um, all really talented musicians. And then there was the Oakland scene with, uh, you know, Calvin Keys and, um, and, uh, oh, and piano player, Ed, uh, I can't believe it. Oh yeah. Ed, uh, uh, that's just terrible. Kelly. Ed Kelly. Yeah. Thank you. Jeez. Um, and E.W. Wainwright, um, so the point being that there was just like there was a, there was kind of this bridge there you know and and also because the Bay Area scene isn't too large you end up sort of if anybody's playing creative or jazz music or whatever uh, you end up working with almost everybody you know mm. because it's not so like the contrast to New York is that the New York scenes are so large that people really get buried in one scene and it's possible to never really interact with people who are doing other things. And in the Bay Area, it didn't feel like that, and yeah. so it, I think that creatively was 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 energizing because because you were playing straight ahead one night and then something really out the next night and then a hip hop gig and then maybe a reggae band would call you and you'd say okay you know because you knew some guy who played bass in this band and said oh you should come and do this gig you know. <laughs> things and you'd learn from that you know, mm. you'd learn just the way that people hear music and the way they feel music it would influence you the other thing that was great about being out there was that because the uh the bright lights of the jazz scene weren't really focused there in terms of like the press and all that i mean you could really experiment and you wouldn't you could it'd be okay to fail in public right. you know yeah i did plenty of that yeah sure everybody did <laughs> but 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 i think that that was one of the best things about um kind of uh, sowing your oats or, <laughs> or, you know, just growing, learning your craft in an area like that where, um, you know, there were plenty of high quality musicians to interact with and there was lots of stuff to do. Um, and, you know, I went to Sonoma State, so I, I thought they had a great faculty at that time. Yeah, um, you studied with Randy Vincent, right? Yeah, Randy Vincent was there. And um, I was just reading was, about how Julian Lodge studied very mm -hmm. heavily with Randy Vincent. Yeah, Julian spent a lot of time with Randy. Yeah. 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 So, well, 
you know, Randy, um, Randy is one, I always thought he had this like an encyclopedic, encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of the instrument. I mean, just, you'd say anything, how would you do a chord melody on, you know, but not for me or whatever. And he'd just say, oh, he'd start playing, you know, and you would think like he'd, you know, like, did you ever do that before? And, and, you know, yeah, he, he was, was one, of, one of these undersung heroes well, of the instrument, I guess, which which are occupy a lot of cities across the country. Well, that's the thing. There are all these great players that, that don't, uh, if they don't leave and come east, um, sometimes they just don't get the coverage that they deserve, you know, hmm. and, and I don't know, you know, that, that'd be, I don't know how Randy feels about all that, you know, but I think he had a good quality of life and, and had a good stable of students and he's playing good games with great musicians and so yeah. he doesn't feel like he missed out on anything i suppose you know you remember that band that he and steve cardness had doing all monk all tunes? Mon- yeah that was amazing yeah that was amazing <laughs> yeah right right so anyway the point is there was a lot of great stuff out there and it was a good time and then so when i finally did come back to new york um you know i wasn't just fresh out of college you know i had a few years of of trying to make it happen and then and so uh, I thought that was an advantage for me. Yes. You know, the, the only disadvantage was maybe not going to school on the East Coast. You don't have all those connections with yes. dozens of people who are here trying to make it happen. You mm. know, so it's like, you know, it seems like if you go to Berkeley or the New School or Manhattan or one of those, you know, you have a higher percentage of one of your type friends being, uh, being a source of lots of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the nepotism true. is strong, right? <laughs> right. So that's the, only, that's the only thing you don't really get from yeah. going to school outside of east coast but in, in any case it was a great a great time yeah well you built an early alliance when you got here with henry threadgill so we're going to play a movement from his guitar concerto that he composed in uh what last year and it just got released on pi recordings right mm-hmm. yeah, and i talked out. about this with henry on an earlier podcast so let's hear a little bit of that and then we're going to uh talk about it <laughs> So that's a, a pretty amazing composition. It it's quite complex, mm-hmm. even even more complex than a lot of Henry's other music, in my opinion. So talk to us a little bit about what you had to do to learn this music, and and a little bit about Henry's vocabulary, which is uh, uh, detailed, as I said, in, in another podcast, and is I would say is in and of itself a whole subject that we can't enter right now. But 
what we can talk about is is kind of what how playing with Henry and using his system changed your playing and and made you grow as a musician and we can use what we just heard as a springboard for that conversation mm-hmm. well the, the the thing about this piece is that it it's kind of a culmination of what Zuid has been working on for a long time I mean I think fr- from Henry's uh, perspective I don't think that there's a separation among this piece of music and any of the other pieces except mm-hmm. for that he had a, a large format for the form you know the form of the entire piece mm-hmm. was a little bit more it's a little bit more formal in its intention mm-hmm. closer to what classical composers deal with or, or modern contemporary music composers deal with um, in terms of its scope but uh, you know in terms of performing the music uh, it was a little bit more, you know, Henry, uh, I think like all great composers, really is interested in mining everything he can out of the instruments that he's writing for, you know, mm-hmm. so so he won't just give you something that says, oh, here's the melody that I wrote for a, a trombone and you play it, you know, it's like, that's not the way that Henry would ever approach this music, and um, it's more about um, seeing what the limits are, what the timbral possibilities are. You know what's the range and, and dynamically what what can you do with it, and then knowing what the players can do and trying to get them to do a little more than they think they can do. You mm-hmm. know, um, so technically it was difficult because it, uh, I am not really a classically trained guitarist. You know, but the music's very specific and there's a lot of detail in it. Um, so I had to work extra hard. Yeah. You know, just to prepare myself to perform it. Um, which was great because you know it makes me a better musician technically, mm. um, and the reading is quite difficult. But then also, um, the meat of a lot of what we do has to do with Henry's forms. Mm. Um, you know, the harmonic aspect is certainly a big part of how he composes the music and and how we create a vocabulary for improvising on it, which mm. I'm sure you've talked a little bit about with him. Um, people might might know of it as his interval system, you know, or the numbers as he might call it. Yeah. But that isn't really, to me, that is one of many things. Like It's just like jazz players, you know, you can't just use modes as a way to play over music. Mm-hmm. So maybe his interval system, aside from being a compositional tool, uh, gives you uh, a harmonic uh, base to build lines and motific information from. You know? But really, to me, the genius is in the way he deals with form. And that comes from... Uh, taking all of his melodic sections of the music and then seeing how he can expand them uh, by uh, changing rhythmic values of the the harmonic meter. Hmm. Um, And all of the rhythm, you know, the fact that we have changing time signatures in every bar has more to do with the melodic phrasing. And it's it's not about trying to be complicated. It's just like, well, this melody has a a seven-beat phrase. And then it's followed by a three-beat phrase and a five-beat phrase, and, and so that's why the meters change. You know, in his mind, it's perfectly logical. And if you if you learn the music, it feels natural. It doesn't mm. feel complicated. Although, as a listener, if you don't have a chart or you're not really uh, if you're not really familiar with his way of writing, it can be completely mysterious. Yeah. A lot of times, people ask us, you know, how much of that is free. And, I, and they're always amazed when I say none. <laughs> right. None of it is free. You but know? when you're soloing, yeah. obviously you're creating your own lines. But you're playing yeah. over a repeating section where no. meters sometimes change frequently, correct? Oh, absolutely. So I mean, tell us how uh, you negotiate 
this type of solo because I think for younger players, um, it's a challenge to play over anything where the time keeps shifting and and know where you are. Right. So what, well, what you're you've you've been doing that for a long time. Give us some strategies. Well, I think that it doesn't matter if it's this kind of music or if you're just playing standards or anything like that. Um, you have to think melodically. You know, when you're improvising to create. Uh, something that makes sense, you know, just musically speaking, not not something that is easily di easily dissected theoretically, but just something that sounds like music. You have to think melodically, and the only way you can think melodically over any piece of music is to know the music and um, to feel comfortable with what's happening underneath. Now, this music, the, the forms are complicated, so you have to spend a lot of time internalizing the rhythmic the rhythmic motion, you know. And so if I know how long each chord, you know, you have to know how many beats you have over each chord, just like you would in any kind of tune. solo section the first two bars end up being uh, four beats for the first chord mm -hmm. followed by one that's three beats then one beat two beats and two beats okay and that's something that it, and it's, a, it's actually a bar of seven but we do something called long meter which is the bar of seven moves and the harmony moves kind of quickly and so in order to really improvise over that harmony he doubles the length of each chord and that's what he, something he calls long meter. So he okay. says long meter, you know, to double everything. Mm -hmm. So instead of playing, uh, in this case, it would be two. Well, let's see. He, he actually did this a little different. But in this case, anyway, the first chord is four beats, followed by three beats, then one beat, two beat, and two beat. So if you know what the chords are, you you sort of start your solo in the chord tones, you know, and then you, you use the numbers to sort of help come up with your melodic shapes. And then you have to be reading, and you have to know when your chords are changing. It's, I mean, it's just like yeah. playing any music. You sure. Know? It's not, there's no mystery to that. But what makes it mysterious is that these 
chords don't lend yourself to traditional jazz vocabulary. So you can't bring a bag of tricks to, mm. to this music. What you have to do is throw those away and come up with a new bag that fit this material. And so his harmonic system helps your ear bend and, and come up with this new ways of putting melodies together that make sense. Wow. And, and you have to understand his voice leading, you know. But that's only by studying his, his chords and doing your homework before you start playing. So how many you know? times did you run this piece before it was performed? Uh, well, the first performance we did at Roulette, um, I guess that was back in November of 2014. And, uh, you know, the wonderful thing about Henry is that he knows, he understands what it takes to work this music up. And so he he asks of his musicians if they dedicate the time to it. Um, and it's a luxury that he can afford because people who want to play with Henry have enough respect for him that if he says we need to do seven rehearsals, right. everybody says, okay, you know, and we get, we get our calendars out and we carve the time out. Mm -hmm. And there's very, unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of... Um, everybody's scrambling so hard just to get stuff done that it's very rare that you can ask anyone to do something like that unless yeah. it's unless there's a lot of money involved or something yep. you know but uh but henry has proven to me certainly that if uh if you have a mutual respect with the musicians and and they believe in what you're doing that they will they feel a part of it. You know, we all feel like we're invested in this band. So, yeah. so we're willing to put in the time. And it doesn't, it's like, where would I rather be home watching Game of Thrones or at a Henry Threadgill rehearsal? <laughs> Personally, I'd rather be rehearsing with Henry. Yeah, right. You know, you can always find time for other things. Hmm. Um, so we just work a lot. So the first time we performed it, we must have had at least <clears throat> seven or eight rehearsals. Right. Each wow. four hours, probably each. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. So tell me, what, so when you go to play other kinds of music, maybe just simpler kinds of music, like a, a jazz tune or a, a one-chord funk mm -hmm. jam, in what ways do you feel that working with Henry has transformed your playing so that no matter what it is you're playing on, you've got this vocabulary that you never would have had otherwise? Well, I think that there are certain places that it definitely has strengthened my own playing. Uh, number one is having the confidence in your melodic uh, intuition. Because you have to create so many, uh, you have to create so many new ideas for yourself when you play over this music. Um, just because of the, the dynamic of this particular type of harmony and the rhythmic motion. Uh, a lot of the devices you might learn when you learn to play jazz, you know, four note uh, melodic ideas moving over changes and the way the voice leading works and all that. Like, you know, like I said before, that stuff doesn't really apply in this particular music. Just the shape of the music is different, you know. Right. So you have to trust your ear. You have to say, I have to know that I can develop, uh, I can create melodies in any time signature on the spot, you know, and that they can, they can connect to each other and I can develop these rhythmic, uh, discussions with the band that that connect one line to the next mm. even more so than maybe just like a very smooth harmonic thing yeah <laughs> ¶¶ 
Okay, so we're going to get you to play a little to to demonstrate some of this, and, and here's how I'd like to do it. I'm going to ha ask you to play uh, in the key of A minor, beloved guitar key, <laughs> uh <-huh. Okay. laughs> and, um, and start out playing inside the jazz vocabulary that you grew up with. Mm -hmm. I know from talking with you that Grant Green and mm -hmm. Wes and Pat Martino are big influences, and... Um, Anybody who knows your playing can hear that, mm -hmm. and then let, let's uh, jump to the to the present, and and ask you to play after that fifteen years of, of playing with Henry Threadgill, and and see if you could just show us what that's done mm -hmm. to your vocabulary. I'll try. Yeah, I'll yeah, try. try. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. Break it down like but, that, but but see, you know, do, uh, do do a little of that. Um, okay. Well. A more traditional approach to playing on A minor, you know. Great, you know. <laughs> I like that. But, you know, that... that uh, but the thing, you know, I have to say this because the, the there's so much more than than what is going on in my mind that makes that music happen. I mean, we're talking about what have you learned from Henry or something like that, and it, yeah. and a lot of that really it, it requires other musicians to to be playing with for me sure. to get into that, you know. Um, so well, it's, it's not something that can be demonstrated necessarily, but sure. but I could say that like in Henry's music, I have to be thinking more about. Um, not just about playing some kind of lines like that. You know, mm. It's more about interacting with the rhythm that's happening. You know? mm. um, so if I'm playing, you know, it's rare that you would just have an A minor chord with Henry, but if I did... Let's you know, say A pedal. <laughs> a pedal, right, right, right. <laughs> but if I did, you know, so you might start out, you know, trying to play something strong melodically, right? trying to stay in, in like a rhythmic tension mm. that that is something that whoever I was playing with would grab onto and we would start dialoguing you know oh. so it's a little bit like talking to myself when I try to do it like this <laughs> yeah you know it doesn't feel I don't feel as confident about it as I would if I was playing with the band but 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 it's but I think that the the way I communicate with other musicians is what's really been what was would really be where I feel the difference in terms of like what I've learned from Henry, but also, like I said, I feel like the biggest course of study is the way he deals with form, hmm. you know, and that is something that isn't necessarily guitar specific, you know. 
Of course. But it, but it's the way we, we interact, and, and maybe the way that I, you know, certainly influences the way I write my music. But but if I'm playing with someone else, um, you know, hopefully we can uh, find a way to keep that music moving. I mean, like the way you even hear the music, you know, like sometimes when you're playing, uh, I can find it frustrating if it's very static, you know. Um, but that's like a very subjective thing. So I think what you're talking about is this rhythmic counterpoint where each instrument occupies a niche that's talking to another instrument Mm -hmm. and then the soloist comes through in the middle of that and and dialogues with the rhythm that's going on yeah I mean, of course that's true in and in, in jazz anyway absolutely. but this is just an, sort of a very personal uh, expansive vision of, mm -hmm. of that right um yeah it's really hard to put in the words but it, it's um i guess the idea is that when you know when, when no matter what music you're playing the idea is like what what's possible and why are you doing it you know and you know those aren't questions that are always applicable if you're playing a gig in a restaurant but if you're playing a concert for somebody you know hmm. the idea is like you know what am i bring what am i going to bring to them that they're not going to get when they come to see whoever's playing tomorrow night you know right so so you have to bring whatever um whatever experience you have and whatever perspective you have on your instrument and deliver that and um and that's some i mean since we're talking about henry it's like i can't think of another example i, I mean i can think of lots of great examples but he is a, is a perfect example of that because he plays completely his own way hmm. um he's got a huge sound very identifiable type of sound and he's created a context of music around him uh to present that yeah you know? and i think that's what all the jazz greats have done you know mm -hmm. when you think of people like Coltrane and Miles Davis and stuff like that I mean like they have they had ceaselessly built a context for their presentation right that was different it, it was something that they were working you know whatever they were working on at the time or whatever they were curious about at the time they really were successful in building that group and building that sound around yeah. them not just how they solo you know like calling a great solo is just not enough it's like you gotta build a a whole platform for your material you know yeah. and you know it's wonderful to hear somebody play a perfectly articulated solo over a tune that everybody knows I mean that's a that's a tried and true way of um, transmitting the jazz language you know and learning to play jazz but I don't but I think you know what for me what is so interesting about the iconoclastic people is that they they want to approach it you know a real painterly way very fine art perspective yeah know? and and i find it just really exciting because you feel like you're a part of something that hasn't happened yeah you know not that everything has to be undone mm. or, or you know everything has to be you know primary but but uh there's a certain excitement to trying to you know just trying to see let's just see if we can challenge ourselves and do something we've never done <laughs> Thank you. 
So we've talked a lot about how you and people who you're contemporary with have opened up this new language that Steve Coleman and others was so much a part of developing. I guess you're maybe 15 years younger than Steve, 14, 13, something like that. So it's not as if you're another generation, but but uh, you're yeah. you're close. But then there's a lot of young guys younger than you who are mm-hmm. now taking this and bringing it to another place. So mm-hmm. I'm curious from your perspective, like what are what are some guitar moments that were really influential for you uh, in those those days we were talking about in the Bay Area that sort of drove you and, and made you see the future? started with Dave Holland Extensions and hearing Eubanks playing, bringing in his rock fusion kind of element, but yet uh, I felt like the integrity of the compositions were so strong with Dave. Well, they all contributed to that record, Mm. Um, but there was a commonality there, and I think it had a lot to do with Steve Coleman's presence and and what he brought to the table um, in a harmonic shape, you know, Um, and the rhythm stuff that they started to work on that really drew me in. So Kevin's playing was refreshing because it was unlike anything I heard before. Maybe because of his technique, with he didn't pick, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was really strong rhythmically again. You know the way he handled like that title track was called Nemesis. Yes. And that groove, you know, it's a, in eleven. It's just like this tasty kind of bluesy groove, but but yet um, really stimulating intellectually as well as just feeling great. You know. Yeah. So I saw that band live. I think it's probably in nineteen ninety. I was and there too. Really yeah. concepts, concepts, out. yeah. And it was just amazing. such an exciting show. And yeah. I told Steve this recently, actually, um, because I I felt like you know it made sense as a young person to say you know I feel like this is real modern and fresh and it's still jazz, but it's not. Uh, I feel like it's music of a current generation. That yes. you know that that feels valid. You know, it's like this is contemporary music. It's improvised. It's it's jazz. It's based on everything that's great about jazz, but yet it has a new element that brings it forward. Yeah. And Steve is a wonderful example of that. So then listening to Steve with his own music um, and the way he brought in uh, uh, the context for providing, playing odd times over standards and, and, uh, or just building, building entire pieces over these rhythm concepts uh, and what he's expecting the band to do, you know, the way he wants them to commit to a certain type of rhythmic energy. Hmm. Um, it just felt so vital and fresh. And Gilmore, uh, the way he played on that music, you know, uh, was so perfect, you know. And so that obviously was another big influence in terms of, like, um, just the way that you sort of can approach some of that stuff. And a lot of that had to do with what Steve laid down, you know, like right. certain kind of chord cells he wanted and, and all that and yeah. how they fit, you know, their funky 
could almost be a James Brownish type of thing, but yet it's in seven and there's yeah. no, uh, you know, there's just something not obvious about it that made it hit, you know. Yeah. Well, that's, um, we've joked about this, but it, it's kind of true that that, uh, that record extensions was a marker point mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I know it was for me. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's just one of those albums that I think uh, for guitar players who want to play modern jazz and they're not just, they're just like, you know, being hungry for something that's like fills both sides of the brain. You know, yeah. that, that particular record really did well. And, and uh, Steve made another rec uh, record called Rhythm and Mind uh, that Kevin played on, uh, which was kind of an all-star band. Hmm. But it, it has a, it showcases another version of that. You know, hmm. and Kevin played great on that too. Really good solos on that too, yeah. on that record. Um, well, let's play some more of your music. Uh -huh. um, we're going to hear Rhinoceros. Rhinoceros.
this is really, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I consider myself a fairly intelligent musician, but I have no idea what's going on in this piece, rhythmically. <laughs> right. So could you explain this to us? Well, that thankfully has something to do with the way Damian and Stefan played. Uh, there's there's a se the sections we listen to. This piece has a number of sections we didn't hear, um, but the particular parts that we heard is a, this is a uh, this B section, which is this really cool groove that's got a triplety feel to it. Um, and Damian came up, he actually came up with the way he was playing the drums on that, that so they give it this elastic feel that was mm. perfect for that section. Um, but a lot of the sections I write, that, that one I started with the bass line, um, and uh, all, you know, I feel like every time I want to write something for the bass, it it's always has to be very melodic. It's not just about it being rhythmically hip. And, and a lot of times, my bass lines are actually very simple. You know, the the, the overall uh, rhythmic thing might be uh, a little less obvious, but but when you see it on paper and you start playing it, usually you people everyone says, "Oh, that's what it is." You know, mm -hmm. and I like that because it gives you know they can get into it and start playing confidently kind of quickly you know but it still sounds uh interesting you know and, and i guess that goes back to the roots of things that we were talking about before. yes um so steph and, and damian just really nailed that vibe and then but then what happens is uh, there are the chords that the saxophone and i play which are that between that and what's happening with the bass and tuba there, there's a harmony outline there and when we get to the solo section rather than just staying on that which uh, which we tried and, and there were some cool takes with that uh, groove, but then I tried uh, what Henry did, which I told you about, which is the long meter thing. So like basically, I just doubled the length of every chord, hmm. and it sort of opened up it, it opened up the feel and gave a longer pad harmonically. So so we I could kind of dig into to the chords a little bit more. And so I feel like the, when I start soloing, it's a little more obvious what's happening. But because of where we're coming from. Uh, it's not too obvious, you know. She makes it a little bit of a game, but but um, but I I feel like the dialogue again is what makes it exciting. You know what's happening, you know, between Damian and I, and the way the guys are laying down the groove, um, and then having uh, the tuba and the bass both there punctuating. You know, they're playing. They have uh, during that section, they're playing similar notes but their instructions during the solo are just to stray you know and jose has a more freedom to sort of uh make these little um contrapuntal comments oh, <laughs> in what we're playing so it provide you know he's playing in the chord but it's you know it's providing this other kind of stuff and that's stuff that he and i do a lot in henry's band and um i'm still working on how to bring some of that feeling into my own music but but one thing that i realized you know is is uh again like the amount of time that we spend working on henry's music mm. um and developing that that way of playing together is something that that i haven't yet had been able to afford with my own group you know so a dream a dream scenario is yeah. is being able to rehearse 10 times <laughs> 20 times for yeah. a record and a gig and yeah well the, you know the, the the older you get the harder that that is well, until like you re reach the reach that that status perhaps like Henry where you're a, an icon <laughs> well I'm not worried about trying to reach that status because <laughs> if you're trying to reach that status you're going to be disappointed you know? <laughs> yeah. but I think um, the best I could hope for is that uh, I get out there and you know put together longer tours where we can work on it on the road mm. um, 
and then I can provide more incentive for the guys to put in more time. They already put in a lot of time, so yeah, uh, that I think. I mean, that's something that's actually great uh, in our community of musicians. Um, I mean, when I say our community, I'm just talking about like a lot of the the guys that I play with, yes. that we work together. Um, I think we find each other people who are willing to put in that extra, go the extra mile. Yeah. Um, who have you know, and we have similar tastes in what we're trying to achieve. Um, and I think that that's really helpful. You know, like Steve yes. Lehman is someone who's just like a great example of that. And you know, if you look at what he's been able to do with his octet, I mean, it's such a such a great band. Hmm. And uh, and everybody puts in the time to, and the music just really, really stands out. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so he's willing to do that. You know, like if, if I have something new, I can call him, and I know that he'll you know he'll really put in the energy. And, yeah. And put it in and, and give me his opinion and his expertise and all that yeah. and so it's like I, we trust each other you know and yeah. I think everyone who plays in my band is like that you know? yeah. so, so it gives us that confidence you know? so the record comes out in August yeah and it's called it's called Radiate Radiate on Pi Recordings um, well Liberty it's really been great talking with you and I look forward to you being able to build those tours and play this music because it's exciting stuff and it really needs to be out there Thanks, Joel. I really appreciate it. It's been really a blast. Mm-hmm.